The reading for today is Isaiah chapter 58. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I chose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down like his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I chose, to loose the bonds of, the, of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him, and to, not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually, and satisfy your desire in scorched places, and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall rise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Laura. Going to be in Isaiah 58 today, and uh, kind of like New uh, Christmas Eve, um, pretty hard-hitting uh, message this morning, but one that is also filled with uh, the hope and the promise that God uh, offers us. Um, give you an idea of what we're going to be doing in 2018. Uh, we're going to be working our way through the book of Ephesians uh, for, we're going to do 39 weeks. All the other redemption churches, I understand, are doing 40, and, and here's why. Um, and by the way, we're going to be doing it literally verse by verse. There's 155 verses in Ephesians, and we're going to take 39 weeks. So there, there are going to be some Sundays where it's just one or two verses. Uh, so we're going to be going really deep in that. Uh, next Sunday, the 7th, is actually our seven-year anniversary as a church, Redemption Church, all uh, of Redemption Church. So we're going to celebrate our anniversary that Sunday. Um, we're going to do something a little bit different in the service in terms of uh, the sermon and stuff. We're going to have our... Um, 
uh, our executive pastor, Neil Pitchell, here for a little bit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a little discussion with him because he's been around for everything, and, and he's got some wonderful insights as to how God has worked through the church here at Redemption. And then, of course, on the 14th is Marathon Sunday. We didn't think that would be the best day necessarily to start the Ephesians um, uh, uh, um, series, and so we're going to wait on that until the 21st, and so that's what it's going to look like for the next few weeks, but then after that, we're just heads down in Ephesians, but today we're looking at Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58 is one of the most venerated chapters in all of Scripture. It's, it's, a, it's a chapter that's honored and respected and has been talked about and puzzled over. And Isaiah, of course, is a wonderful book in the Bible. Many people uh, say their favorite book in the Bible is Isaiah, and this is one of the um, most challenging um, chapters in this book, uh, but also, again, gives us great hope, but talks about something that, a couple things that are really important to us. There are two keys, I think, that we can see in this in this chapter of Isaiah, two big ideas, if you want to use that uh, language. Here's the first one. Uh, God is sovereign. And we talk about that a lot uh, here at Redemption, that God is sovereign. Uh, we talk about how he's in control of everything. Uh, he is majestic. Uh, but what we maybe don't talk a, a whole lot about in terms of uh, the characteristics and the traits of that sovereignty is that it also means that he just knows everything. He knows everything, including our thoughts. He knows our hearts. He knows the deepest recesses of our hearts. All the little nooks and crannies where all that darkness hides. He knows our true heart. In other words, he knows our intent behind every action that we take in life. He knows what our real intent is. He he doesn't just know the text behind the text. He knows the text behind the text. Uh, behind the text. Um, years ago, speaking of Tom Schrader, I was going to his midweek Bible study, and he was going through the book of Philippians, and uh, he made this statement, and, and it was a statement that I just, I puzzled on for about six months, not sure if it was true. In fact, I pushed back pretty hard against it. I didn't think it was true, and I wrestled with it for about six months. He, he said this. He said, at every moment... In our life, in every relationship that we are in, we are either ministering to that person or we're manipulating them. There's no neutral ground. We are either doing something for them, serving them, helping them, loving them, ministering to them, or we're manipulating them, trying to manipulate them in some way, trying to maybe even deceive them in some way. And I walked out of that study going, I just don't think that's true. I don't don't see how that's true all of the time. And one of the other things he said is that the problem, of course, with the human heart is that it's so dark that most of the time we don't even know ourselves if we're actually ministering or manipulating. That's one of the challenges. Uh, Jeremiah 17.9 says that the human heart is wicked and deceptive above all things. Who can understand it? We're constantly fooling ourselves. When the Bible talks about deception, obviously, Uh, The writers of of the Bible say don't deceive others, but there's also plenty of passage. There are also plenty of passages in the Bible that say don't deceive yourself because it's our favorite person to deceive is ourself. But I I, I just thought about that for literally months. And then one day, 
I'm somebody who still, even today to some extent, I like handwritten notes, uh, especially thank you notes. I like to handwrite a thank you note. I, I like to actually get out a stamp and lick an envelope and find the mail, all that stuff, okay? I'll, I'll text somebody, I'll email somebody, but I'll often follow it up with a handwritten note. And, and I, I remember I had sent out 10 or 12 thank you cards to various people for things that I was thankful for. And, and about a week later, I was out doing some yard work, and I started to think to myself, hmm, not one of those persons that I th sent a thank you card to has thanked me for sending them a thank you card. And then it hit me. At every moment, in every relationship, we are either ministering to or manipulating the person we're in relationship with. And sometimes our heart is so dark, we don't even know which is which. And I realized that I had done this act of ministry to these people, but in reality, I was manipulating them to gain affirmation from me. Isn't that dark? Isn't that wicked? And we do this with things that are way more important than just thank you cards. And God calls attention to that in Isaiah 58. Here's the second key. God values a humble and sincere heart of faith. He values a heart that actually lives out what we claim to believe. I came across this <clears throat> non sequitur cartoon couple months ago. So it's heaven, people waiting in line to get in heaven, checking their credentials. And the sign says, entrance requirement, actually practice the morals taught by your religion. And this lady over here says to her husband, I think it means we don't have to worry about being too crowded in there. Isaiah 58 is about hypocrisy. It's about something that you and I love to call out in other people, but very rarely look at ourselves and evaluate ourselves in. And it's not about the hypocrisy of people who don't know God, people outside of faith. This is really important to get. God is talking to his people here. He's talking to the church. He's saying, people of faith, people that know me, you too have this problem with hypocrisy. You too are posers, and that's a problem. And it's not just hypocrisy... But, but it's devious, manipulative, spiritualizing of sin and oppression. So let's kind of go through the text and, and, and explain it all as we look at this. Look at those first two verses again. <clears throat> Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression to the house of Jacob. It's another way of saying Israel. Their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments and they delight to draw near to God. That, that little expression there, cry aloud, in the Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew, it literally means be willing to destroy your throat while preaching this. I think it's ironic that I've got a little bit of laryngitis right now as I'm preaching this. But that's literally what that ancient Hebrew word means. Be willing to go out and destroy your throat proclaiming this truth. And so it's the preacher who's authoring this. This is Isaiah. But he's filled with the Holy Spirit. God is speaking to him. And he is proclaiming and writing this down. And, and there's this contrast in verses 1 and 2, which I think is fascinating. Verse 1 says, go ahead, tell the people the truth. Go ahead and proclaim the absolute truth to the people. Because verse 2, they're actually asking for it. 
They say, we want to hear your righteous judgments, O God. We want, to, we want to hear the truth for you. The reason that they're saying that, though, is because they ask thinking that they have cleverly covered their sin, their deceit, their, ex, uh, their oppression, and their exploitation. They ask thinking that they're going to get affirmed. They ask thinking that they're going to be praised. But God is saying, I know your hearts. I know that all of this religious activity that you've been involved in is empty. It's like Jesus says, the whitewashed tombs. Inside, your intent for all of this religious activity is really just to manipulate others, to oppress others, and to manipulate me, God. But I know everything. You have no veil when it comes to me. He knows everything. And, and I've noticed this about virtually all of the Old Testament prophets. At some point, almost every Old Testament prophet will get into this, this argument with the people about how, listen, you guys need to understand that this religious facade that you're putting on isn't fooling God. It may be fooling everybody else, but it's not fooling God. You need to remember that he knows and sees everything. So while you may be gaining the affirmation of the people around you, God is still looking at you and judging your heart in the midst of this. So they ask for God's judgments because they think the answer from God will be filled with praise. But the answer is, you're hypocrites. You're posers. So how would we define that word hypocrite? In the New Testament Greek, Greek, the word that we translate hypocrite in the New Testament literally means somebody who wears a mask so they can play act at being somebody else. That's what a hypocrite is. It's, it's actually a, a theater term in, in um, ancient Greek. Um, here, it's very similar, but here, what it, just, it just means that you're pretending to be someone that you aren't for the purpose of deception and manipulation. That's what a hypocrite is. I... I do a lot of weddings. It's one of the joys of my ministry here. We, demographically, we are a pretty young church. And so I, I get to do a lot of weddings, and, and occasionally those weddings that I do will take me out of town. We have a lot of transplanted people here but want to get married in their hometown, and if it fits in my schedule, I'll, I'll do that. So maybe once or twice a year I'll be out of town for a wedding. Um, Veterans Day weekend in November, I got to go to Dallas to do a wedding for a couple that lives here and attends uh, here, and it was, it was fantastic. It was really wonderful. Um, one of the memorable weddings I was at, but what made it most memorable was the DJ that worked the wedding. Uh, I, I've worked with a lot of really, really talented and wonderful DJs, but nobody ever liked this. His name was Ed Petty. What a magnificent guy. I mean, a tremendous entrepreneur and, and a man who just oozed his faith in Jesus Christ. And here you go. This is a key. He didn't ooze it sickeningly. Do you know what I mean? It, 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 was, it was so genuine. It was like I was just drawn to the guy because he just had this, this faith about him. The, the spirit was on this guy. And so I was talking to him, and finally... Uh, between the ceremony and the reception, there was about a 90-minute uh, lag time, kind of a cocktail hour and this and that. And so I kind of went over, and we were hanging out and talking. I said, tell me your story. I'd really be interested. Tell me your story. Tell me about your business, because it was more than just DJing. He was doing all the lighting and, and everything else for this wedding. And, and um, 
it was a fascinating discussion. He said, you know, I, I grew up in the church, every Sunday in church, every Wednesday night in church, youth group, kids ministry, all that stuff. He said, I knew how to behave. He said, I knew everything to say. I knew the right thing to say in every situation. And he said, and I was a master at covering my sin with religious activity. I was a master at it. He said, really, what I was was a hypocrite, but I, at the time, thought that I was clever and a master. And the greatest tragedy, he said, was I thought I was a Christian, but I really wasn't. Kind of like the Jews in Isaiah 58. They know they're God's people, but they're not behaving like God's people behind the scenes, and that is a problem. He said, then I got married. My wife got pregnant. We found out we were going to have twins. What a joy. But then they came way too early, and they were very, very sick. And the first words out of the doctor's mouth were, was, I, I, I don't think they're going to make it. We're going to do everything we can, but I don't think they're going to make it. And he said, and I walked away from that conversation, and I began to pray fervently. I began to pray like I had never prayed before. And he said, I'll never forget. He said, the Holy Spirit spoke right into my soul. And the Holy Spirit said this, Ed, you are not a Christian. You don't believe. Why are you praying to a God you don't even believe in? Before we discuss your twins, you need to get squared away with me. Wow. And then he looked at me and he said, why do you and I so easily reject rebuke and suffering? When very often that is the only thing that will ever get our attention about the most important thing in our life. So then you look at the first part of verse 3, and I call this, this first half of verse 3, I call it the people's whiny complaint. Listen to what it says. Why, see God or Isaiah is quoting the people here, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Religious activity does not necessarily mean a sincere heart. We can dress it up, but it doesn't necessarily mean a sincere heart. Uh, in fact, as is the case here, religion is used as a ruse to cover, cover evil hearts, to cover evil hearts. Because the hearts of the Israelites had grown hard and wicked at this time. And Isaiah is trying to warn them about the coming judgment that God is going to bring upon them. You know, for millennia, theologians and philosophers and dramatists have talked about this, the internal struggle that you and I have, that we have a divided self, right? We've already talked about this. It, our favorite person to lie to is usually ourself. We lie to ourselves about so many things. We have, we have that it's been portrayed before as the demon on one shoulder and the angel on the other shoulder, you know. Um, Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 7. The things that I want to do, I don't do those things. The things I don't want to do, those are the things I find myself doing. Thanks be to God, to Jesus Christ. We are, we are divided. Sometimes people talk about it. It's a difference between the public self and the private self, Right? Well, who you really are is what, how you behave in private. We've, we've heard that said before. Uh, dramatists uh, talk about it as 
uh, being your front stage self and your backstage self. That's how they talk about it. In 1959, Irving Goffman wrote what I think is a seminal uh, book talking about this. It's called The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life, where he talks about how we have different roles that we will take on given life's performative situations where we will behave a certain way depending on what the decorum calls for. And, and he talks at great length about how we have a front stage self and then we have a backstage self, our hidden self, where we behave in ways that we would never want anybody else to ever see, right? I have a backstage self and, and I don't want anybody to see it, not even Jackie. Of course, she lives with me, so sometimes I get into trouble because, you know, she catches me in my backstage self. Got my fat pants on and a 25-year-old sweatshirt, you know, watching soccer or something goofy like that. Jesus talks about something similar to this in the Gospels. You know, the, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. But think about the context in which Jesus talks about that. He says, when you do your acts of righteousness, when you give money, when you pray, um, don't, don't trumpet it before the people of God. Uh, don't, don't pray in such a way that draws attention to you as if to say, look how pious I am. Don't do that. Y your acts of righteousness need to be done privately. Because if you do them publicly... Uh, what you're really saying is, I just want the affirmation of human beings. A and God even says, your reward will come to you on earth when you do that. But those things that you, those acts of righteousness that you do privately between you and God, that's, those, those rewards are reserved for heaven. That's hard to do, though, isn't it? We live right now in a culture that is obsessed with something called virtue signaling, Right? We tweet things out, and, and really what it is is we're just signaling our virtue to people. Well, here's how I feel about this. And then we check every five minutes for likes on Twitter, you know, the little heart, you know. God looks at virtue signaling, and he says this. You've got your reward. you got three little hearts. That's your reward for that. There's no reward in heaven for that. We struggle with this divided self. And God comes along in Isaiah 58 and he says, I'm not going to be used like this. You're not going to be able to manipulate. And, and, and listen to the offense that the people feel in this verse. They're saying, hey, God, we're doing these great things. Now you're supposed to do for us. You see that? We, we're, we're, we're performing our religious duties. Now, take care of us. Serve us, God. God, you are obligated. You must submit. Let me ask you a question. Who is God in this scenario? It's not Yahweh. The people think, who is serving who? And it is God subservient to the people. They're the ones who have placed themselves on the throne while God is their servant. And God says, that's really not how this works. And this idea that that God is obligated to us. God doesn't owe us anything. He's given us everything. He gave us his son. He gave us truth. He gave us wisdom. He gave us salvation. He gave us redemption. He does not owe us a single thing. He's already given us everything we could possibly want. And then in verses 3b through 5, God answers the whiny complaint. The empty religious activity is exposed. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. 
and oppress all your workers. See, I know your heart while you're fasting. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? He's saying, yeah, you're engaging in the spiritual disciplines. You're praying. You're, you're fasting. You, you are observing the Sabbath, but you don't really mean it. It's empty and hollow. It's a mask. It's hypocritical. I know your heart. Uh, one Old Testament scholar says this. These verses describe meticulous religious observance combined with a life of ruthless social ethics. Something that the people of Israel did for centuries. They practiced their religion and then treated their kins, their kinfolk, like just garbage. This scholar goes on to say, something that many pious people in every generation, including ours, have attempted. This ethic of dissonance has been tolerated by humans for centuries, but it is clear in God's word that this is what makes God literally nauseous. We'll see that in the book of Amos on Wednesday night. He says, your sacrifices, because they're with an empty heart, they sicken me. They make me want to throw up. God says this hypocrisy, and Jesus said it too in the Gospels, this hypocrisy may feel clever, but, is, but it is clumsily transparent and sickening to God. And notice uh, the constant call for God's people to be humble. And the truth is, is that you and I can never truly live as God's people if we don't Start first from a position of humility. I know this is hard-hitting. Let me tell you right now, this sermon is way more autobiographical than you might think. I really feel like, for the most part, I'm preaching to myself, and you're just here watching because you got nothing better to do on Sunday morning. This is, this is what I have struggled with ever since I became a Christian. This, this Romans 7 battle, the, the, the battle between the spirit and my flesh. Um, what God is saying here is that as God's people, we are privileged. Aren't we privileged? We have Christ. We're in Christ. We are privileged people. But privilege is not a guarantee of worldly protection and entitlement. And privilege always, privilege always comes with responsibility. This is not God speaking to unsafe people. He's speaking to his people saying, out of gladness, out of gratitude, out of a gracious heart, you should be, you should be living a life that models my love for you. 1 Peter 5 says this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then verses 6 through 12 describes the call to genuine relationship with God. Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. 
If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and, the speak, and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden. That's significant. Like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall call the repairer of the, be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Verses 6 and 7 talk about what true fasting is. True fasting is not just about not eating. It's not about skipping a couple of meals and then telling everybody how you're skipping food for God. That's not what it's about. It's about seeing God as your strength through the fast and then living joyfully and gratefully to him by serving others. And part of that description of the fast in verse 7 is Isaiah says, and do not hide yourself from your own flesh. In other words, don't hide yourself from your immediate family, but also don't hide yourself from your kinsmen, your, your, your countrymen. You have, you have people in your country that you should be caring for, and you're not. You're, you're pushing that off on someone else, fellow Israelites who are in need. And then he says, there's this yoke that you need to break. And what is this yoke that, he, that we need to break? It's the yoke of corruption that each of us is burdened by because of our sin. It's, it's our, our lying, our gossiping, our abuse of power. It's our sexual misconduct, our adultery, and it's, it's the way we create dissension and factions. It's, it's bowing down and worshiping the idols of this world instead of the one true God. It's turning from this yoke of corruption that we've, we've willingly stepped under and, and turning away from these false gods. And when we do, he says, it will be healing to you. And, and not only healing to you, but it'll be healing to the people that are around you. And it helps us restore our relationship with God. And, and I would argue that verses 6 through 12, and many of the scholars do too, Verses 6 through 12 are really a picture of Jesus. You see that language in verses 6 through 12, and you see so much of that being lived out by Jesus and being taught and preached by Jesus in the Gospels. He's the one who breaks our yokes. Not just the yoke of sin, but the yoke of religiosity. This idea that we do all of this religious stuff thinking that it's cool and he breaks that yoke, and he says, it's about being in relationship with me. He gives us new life. He's the one that causes us to become new creations, causes us to be born again. And he frees the prisoner, and he heals the afflicted, and he takes away the tears. And his grace and his power, with that grace and power, we become like lush, watered gardens. That's the picture of Jesus, of being with Jesus. Now, Think about this. I just said that when, when we break these yokes, when we begin to live out a life of sincere and humble faith, it not only is healing to us, but it's also healing to others. Who is a garden for? It's for everybody. It's for the other. That's that picture that is here. 
And, and verse 12 foreshadows two things, kind of on two levels. The first thing that Isaiah is foreshadowing here is in another 300 years after the Babylonian exile, when the Jews come back to Jerusalem and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the wall, it's foreshadowing those books of Ezra and Nehemiah. If you've never read those books, they are wonderful books, wonderful stories. He's foreshadowing 300 years in advance the return from the exile. But then he's also foreshadowing the new Jerusalem when Jesus comes again. Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Don't the nations need to be healed? We need healing. Internally and with each other. I love that verse. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Jesus' magnificent kingdom, and you and I are a part of that. And then you look at those last two verses, verses 13 and 14. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's the rap he gives us. That's the, the hope, the, uh, the promise of the inheritance that we have in him through his Messiah, Jesus. And what God is saying is don't play around with faith. Don't, don't turn this into a stage or a theater. Instead, live this faith everywhere you go because that's where the genuine joy and fulfillment come. And isn't that ultimately what we're all looking for is joy and fulfillment, not happiness necessarily because happiness is based on circumstances. Joy transcends circumstances. To be joyful even when things aren't going well, that's what we're looking for. That's what it means to be fulfilled. And think of those times when you know you've been a hypocrite, when you've misrepresented yourself. Did it really produce long-lasting joy? I, I'm guessing no, if we're really honest with ourselves. You, you, know, you may have gotten what you wanted. You may have won in the moment. that you, you may have accomplished what you set out to do. But do you even remember now the spoils of that victory from manipulating or deceiving someone else? Do you even remember the spoils of those victories? We probably don't, but here's the problem. The people that you did this with, remember what you did to them. That's a problem. Those things always last longer. Research has shown this. What we will do to get our own way is remembered long after we remember what good it brought about for us. Truth is, genuine faith in Jesus, and that's faith for salvation and for living, is ultimately, gives us, is ultimately what gives us what we've always wanted, and that is that joy and that fulfillment, that contentment, that intimacy and trust. And not just for us, but again, 
More importantly, I think, for those who are around us. A couple weeks ago, um, I sent a text to Jackie, and, and I'll give you a little context for it. She's been talking about some changes we need to make in the kitchen, in our house, and how we, we really, it would be really nice if we had a, a patio in our backyard. We don't have a patio in our backyard. You just open up the back door, and there it is. No place to really hang out or sit or anything. The dogs like to go out there, but you don't very often find humans in our backyard. And, and so she's like, hey, maybe we could do a patio. And I'm like, mm, you know, typical husband. <laughs> and then we discovered that our youngest daughter and her husband had booked flights to come home for Christmas that were not exactly correct. And we wanted to change them to get them home sooner. Well, that was going to cost us some money. And, and I don't remember why, but I text Jackie and I just said this, hey, what do you need most from me? And in my mind, I'm thinking, patio, Darby and Joey coming home sooner, I'm not sure, but it's going to be one of those things. Almost immediately, she texts me right back, and she says, what I need most from you is your faithfulness in God. Now, why would she say that? Because she knows that's where genuine trust, intimacy, grace, forgiveness, vulnerableness, and fulfillment comes. She knows that if I'm faithful to God, I'm going to be a good husband. I'm going to be a, a good father. Whether she gets this patio or not, she knows that the best thing she could have would be my faithfulness in God. And that's true of all of us. It's the greatest gift you and I can give others. I think about Ed in Dallas. What a gift it was to work with that guy. And what he gave me was his faith in Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word and its truth. And we thank you for the promise that you give us of your inheritance. God, remind us who the garden is for. That it's not just for us, but it's for the others in our life. And God, ask, we ask that you would help us to seek Jesus to become that, that lush, watered garden not only in our life, but in the lives of others. Give us the courage and the faith to be able to do that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.